2: Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is our 2023 first base preview episode. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. We're going to go through taking a look at early ADP, looking at this position, breaking it down from almost every angle with the hope of making you better prepared for your fantasy baseball drafts. And Eno, this is a Funny position because I think compared to some of the other infield spots, it's got enough depth where you can play it a lot of ways. It's not as top-heavy as the other corner, which will be our next position preview, and it certainly doesn't tail off anything like second base does. I think when we get to the second base preview, people are going to be just stunned at how that depth seems to evaporate as quickly as ever, but there's some bigger changes around the game that might have something to do with that, but... We begin in the first round. We have a couple of first rounders by ADP in Vlad Jr. and Freddie Freeman. If we're talking about a 15-team league, Freddie sometimes slips into the early part of round two. And I decided to expand this tier. Instead of just saying the first rounders are the only ones in tier one, I included the consistent second rounders here as well. So we are looking at Paul Goldschmidt and Pete Alonso as we get started today as well. Uh, But let's start with Vlad Jr. A little bit of a slide from where he was going This time last year, uh, understandably a slight step down in production in 2022, but in some ways I think it's possible we still haven't seen the absolute best season from Vlad Jr., or at least I don't think it's impossible that he could come close to what he did in 2021 again. I I still think that's in his reasonable range of outcomes within a handful of home runs, 48 home runs. Yeah. With the dead and ball, that might be more difficult, but relative to the field, I think he could still be someone that leads all of major league baseball in home runs. And he could do it with a great average and very good run production as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He just, uh, you know, that, that old kind of, you know, hitting the ball on the ground thing came back. Uh, There's also an interesting article out right now on Sportsnet that the walls are changing in Toronto. When we look back on that 48 home run season in 2021 for Gladito, I feel like we may remember Buffalo, we may remember Dunedin, and how he did not quite have the same home run pace in the second half after they were starting to play in Toronto. So in you know, in 2020 he played in Toronto and he had 32 homers and eight stolen bases and returned by the auction calculator, the 23rd best hitter uh, last last season. Um, but now the walls are changing again. And it's really hard when you read that article, it's really hard to tell which way that place is going to go. Because there are places where the wall is going up, places where the wall is going down. Places where the wall's coming in, and places where I don't think there's places where the walls going out, but the, there's places where the walls are going up. So it's going to get harder in some places, easier in other places. I wonder if they looked at, uh, you know, spray charts for their hitters and are like, oh, will do down hip here and up over here where they don't hit the ball. And, you know, like if it's if they've like figured it all out for their hitters, um, or if it's uh, it does seem actually sort of driven by. Uh, marketing so it's it's a it's designed to create some extra spaces the the trend in baseball now is to create sort of party spaces where not everyone's sitting down so uh, there's like this idea that uh, not everyone's necessarily there to watch every single pitch Hmm. so you create these spaces where People can drink and party and watch on the on the TV and and have more access to the bar and that sort of stuff. So uh, they're going to lose uh, like a thousand or two thousand seats uh, capacity and create these extra spaces uh, that are interesting. So. Um, I don't know exactly what that's going to do. Uh, and then you have for Guerrero himself, you have this kind of yo-yoing ground ball rate. 49.6 in his rookie season, 54.6 in 2020, 44.8 last year and 52.1. Uh, 54, 44.8 in 2021, 52.1 last year for Vladito. So what's his ground ball rate hey, going to be? Uh, I, I love the play discipline. I love the contact ability. I love the power. And uh, the age is the one thing that's also pointing to him to uh, maybe be as valuable as Freddie Freeman next year. As much as I, I think Freddie Freeman is falling off on the power front, he stole 13 bases. The auction calculator said he was the third best player in baseball last year in fantasy baseball. Uh kind of hard to bet against a guy like that who's showing speed still. You know, it's like, yeah, he hits too many opposite field fly balls. Yeah, the power's coming down. Still 300 hitter, 20 homers, 10 stolen bases, like with tons of runs in RBI.
2: Yeah, I I think for Vlad Jr. right now, he's the third highest projected hitter when you run a 15-team by 5 league through the Fangraph's auction calculator with the Bat-X. So only Judge and Acuna have a better dollar value projection than Vlad. I'm fine with Vlad. Vlad is projected the by
1: round. the bad X over Freddie Freeman.
2: Yeah, he's projected ahead of Freeman. I think because of age, it's almost a 10-year age difference between them. That's another thing that would lead me to be on the Vlad side of this one. But with Freddie Freeman, we talked about this in season. The strange reduction in home runs in the face of a, a guy that still has red ink up and down the stat cast page. He still hits the ball very hard. He still barrels the ball enough. He doesn't strike out a lot. He still draws a lot of walks. He doesn't chase that much. Everything you need Freddie Freeman to do to still be an excellent hitter is still in place, and when everything didn't come out quite as good as you would have expected from the power perspective, He found a way to make up for it. And, of course, being in that lineup, the counting stats were absurd. 117 runs, 100 RBIs. I mean, he maxes out playing time. Will some of that come back? I think some of that has to come down, right? Because we were talking about this on an episode recently, looking at this Dodgers infield, and they could make a trade. That's still possible. They're probably not, as a team, going to score as many runs as they did in 2022. So that is going to hurt. Someone like Freeman in those categories, but we're talking about slight drops. They're not going to crash and become some sort of league average or fringe top 10 lineup, I don't think. I think they're still going to be a very good offense, even if they're not elite anymore. The
1: rules, the rule changes uh, will affect Freddie Freeman in two different ways that may not affect Vlad Guerrero Jr. that much. First of all, Freddie Freeman is in that sort of okay but not great speed category where you know he had 13 steals and he's you know he's decently fast faster first base he may steal more bases next year just because of you know because of the rules and then lastly uh the uh, freddie freeman hits the ball hard uh, between zero and 10 degrees uh, launch angle to the pull side and i think that's going to be crucial for determining who Will benefit from the shift rules the most: left-handers who pull the ball at zero to ten degrees and pull it hard. Uh, so I did a query that was like, how you know, how many pulled line drives, uh, you know, over ninety miles an hour, zero to ten degrees, uh, did these guys have? And I just did raw numbers because uh, why not? You know, just get a sense of of the volume of hits that might be changed next year. And Freddie Freeman leads uh, all for first baseman in twenty eight of those hits. So he hits the ball there. He hits the ball where they shift and you know, they're going to have to make some decisions. Freddie Freeman has showed up in almost every one of uh, the places that I've tried to look at uh, who will benefit from this. So uh, take your pick, I guess they they go pretty close to each other. I think, I think you can go with your gut. I mean, what's, you know they're both projected really high. You know, he, Freddie Freeman in the bat is like thirty two dollars.
2: Guerrero is thirty six. I think that's sort of in the margin error. You know, I think one thing you could also consider is if you are in a position in the back of round one, there's at least a chance Freeman is still there with your early second round pick. I don't think Vlad Jr. is as likely to fall, so you could get something else. You could get an outfielder. You could get the first starting pitcher off the board. Whatever it is that you want to take in that first round spot. And then still have the possibility of getting Freeman and you end up with the best combo of players. And that's a big part of the strategy here as well. The other two guys in this group, who more frequently, almost always are in the second round, are Paul Goldschmidt and Pete Alonso. With Goldschmidt, the season he just had last year, you're talking about how valuable Freddie Freeman was. Goldschmidt was almost a $48 player looking at the Rotowire earn values for 15 team leagues from last year. If you look back at the two-year combined totals, more homers than Freeman, only two fewer steals, very similar run production, albeit a little more balanced between runs and RBIs from Goldie, whereas over the last two seasons combined, Freeman has a, a little extra in runs and a little less in RBIs, but that could be pretty variable depending on a lot of other factors. Nevertheless, it seems like there's still just a little bit of skepticism about Goldschmidt relative to Freeman, and they're two guys that have played at a very high level for a long time. So what do you make of the the Goldie skepticism? Is it just being a little bit older?
1: Yeah, and it's it's always worth being uh, skeptical of someone in uh, their early 30s. Uh, you know, he's even in his mid-30s. At 35, uh, you know, the drop-off can come at any time. At the same time, he has a much more balanced skill set and hasn't really shown that much in terms of Falling off. I'm a little surprised that Goldschmidt goes after Alonzo. Yeah, because as much as I like Alonzo, he's much more of a one note guy, and taking a, a one note guy in the second round, uh, as you would with Pete Alonzo, um, is not uh, keeping you afloat in the steals category. Uh, you know, Goldschmidt is going to out batting average him, um, although. Uh, Alonso has made some real strides in the K in the K department, and uh, you know there is always the chance that he gets a little lucky and does hit like you know 280 in a season. Um, but most likely, you're standing pat in batting average. You're taking a big jump forward in power, uh, but you are losing ground in stolen bases. If you take Alonso, I mean this, you know, in the second round is
2: I'm still trying to, you know add in all categories we've previously talked about how the back part of round two so once you get past like pick 20 pick 22 23 it falls off a little more or it's at least filled with players that are, are a little different for that range it's either guys that came up and produced at a high level for the first time last season uh, there's a catcher in that mix in jt real muto that Plays a ton, does everything, and also just had a very long season. So you wonder if that workload could actually have some you know, negative impact on his 2013 or 2023. But the the thinking here is I, I trust all of these top-tier first basemen. I don't see warts with any of them. They're all good. They're Goldschmidt and Alonso, even if you're a little skeptical of Goldschmidt, he'd be in that group of second-rounders I like, second-rounders I trust. Or if I'm in the middle of the round— I'm happy if he's the best hitter still available because the odds of him falling completely on his face seem very, very low. And I think you pointed out Alonzo's improved K rate. He's got that under 20% now over the last two seasons combined. That's not necessarily something I expected to see back when he broke into the league. So I do think his floor has crept up. He's become even less of a batting average liability over time with that improved strikeout rate.
1: Yeah, and he's not a he's not a pull everything guy. He's you know he was hitting Oppo homers to to win that uh, to win that home run derby. So um, he has power to all fields. He's he's a really good player, um, and I'm not really uh, there's nothing wrong about him from a real life standpoint. Uh, uh, it's just that he doesn't steal bases. I think that uh, you know. I have talked about how I don't I want to pick higher than 24th in the second round uh you know if if people want to set their their draft position if they're allowed to in their leagues I would do that if I did get stuck with a draft position where I'm drafting between 25 and 30 in the second round um I do think uh, I I'd said that Rio Muto Strider uh and Lindor were interesting to me but i I think that uh, despite, no matter what the ADP says, I think Goldschmidt would have been the the actual best pick. Especially in my league where I took Tucker in the first round, pairing Tucker and Goldschmidt, I feel like I'm coming out of the first two rounds with a 300 near, 300 batting average because Tucker's going to be impacted by these new rules. Uh, power and speed, I might come out of that uh, first two rounds with 60-60, you know, or 60-50. And... Uh, in homers and stolen bases so i think that i think goldschmidt is a good uh a good pick if you are stuck if you are sort of a one through five pick guy and you don't want to take spencer strider um you know in that uh in that area like if you have the first pick uh you know be really interesting what if you paired turner and goldschmidt you could still get a pitcher in the third
2: Yes, I think you'll find that there's still plenty of high quality starters going because starters relative to the last few draft seasons are sliding just a little bit in the early rounds. Before we go to Tier 2, maybe Matt Olsen's in it. Maybe not. Maybe he's part of this group based on ADP. His ADP is right around that pick 40 range. Dollars earned, he kind of splits the difference between Goldschmidt and Alonzo in that 25 to 29 range, and then the next group, which is a lot of high-teens sort of players. Olson checks in just under $22, depending on the settings and projection system you're using. When you look at him side-by-side, side, though, with Pete Alonzo, Yes. The bat X has Alonzo giving up about nine points in batting average. Everything else is almost the same. Handful of RBIs. You mean but-
1: Olsen giving up about nine points.
2: Yeah. Olsen yeah, yeah. is almost P. Alonzo in the projections, which makes me think he belongs more at the back of this first group than at the top of the next group, because it's like a 40 to 50 pick drop before you get to the next cluster of first basemen.
1: Yeah, he's literally why he's literally why I wouldn't want to necessarily take Alonzo in the second because I feel like Olson is there, you know, in the end of the third, maybe even drops to the fourth in some drafts. So I do struggle to find where the tier line is um, because uh, you know by dollar signs, you, you know, uh, the 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 Bad X projects um, Olson to be twenty three dollars, Alonzo to be twenty six. Uh, the way I ran it. And um, and then Hoskins is is down at, at 17 with Abreu, so you, that's a natural tier where you say, okay, Olsen is in that tier, right? Um, however, uh, you know, projections are not the only thing. And when I look at this and see Reese Hoskins at 17 along with Jose Abreu, Christian Walker, Ryan Mountcastle, um, in the you know in the 15 and up territory, so that might be your next it tier, tier sort of 15 to 20, right? I want to take Hoskins out of that tier, above it. I I've talked about this with you, and uh, and I recently did a draft. Uh, I am in the middle of a, a draft. Uh, it's hard for me to get time right because we are uh, we are recording a lot of these <laughs> um, uh, to bank them uh, for reasons you will figure out later, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, and. Uh, so in this draft that I I had uh, in early uh, January, I took Hoskins in the ninth round uh, in order to avoid um, dropping out of that tier. Abreu had already gone. Nate Lowe had already gone. Vinny Pascantino had already gone. um, And I wanted to stay out of having to take Christian Walker or CJ Krohn. And, you know, with this group, um, you could say well they're all they're all decent well Abreu really started to not hit the fastball well uh last year was his worst year uh hitting the fastball and uh, you know it's hard to tell how important that is there is a, a an interesting piece by uh Robert Orr at Baseball Prospectus, and he's he's talking about Joey Manessas uh, versus uh Matt uh, uh Schwindel what's his, what's his first name Frank Schwindel Frank. Frank the Tank. And uh, and so he he actually, uh, you know, looked at Frank Schwindel against Joey Manessas, which is something we did in this podcast as being like, oh God, hopefully not um, for Joey Manessas. And one thing that he found was Joey Manessas actually, uh, the same thing we found, which is that Joey Manessa hit the ball a lot harder than Frank Schwindel. So that's A. But B also, that he hit the fastball a lot harder than Frank Schwindel. And that hitting the fastball hard predicts your future exit velocities better than hitting other pitches hard. So that's something you can kind of bank and just be like, okay, he hits the fastball hard. That's good. Uh, that means he still has his bat speed, right? That seems like a good kind of proxy for bat speed. I like that. However, average exit velocity is not that predictive for other stats. It's not that important among the suite of stats. So having something, knowing that average fastball velocity, exit velocity predicts exit velocity really well, that's nice, but exit velocities don't don't predict success that well. You know? mm. So uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Jose Breu, despite the fact that he wasn't hitting the fastball that well, still you know made contact, still had a good barrel rate. Um, you know, uh, had the same swing strike rate basically as Reese Hoskins um you know not quite the same barrel rates better max ev than reese hoskins so there's you know you could s- and a better adp because he's got this long track record of having good batting averages maybe jose Breu is good but i have questions about jose Breu. i have questions about christian walker because he he f- lives up there in the 50 percent fly ball rate i have questions about ryan mountcastle because he swings at everything uh so reese hoskins uh you know, there he does have that high fly ball, fly ball, rate. There is some risk when it comes to his batting average, but he's in a great park for most of the year. He'll have a great lineup around him. I have, I think, fewer questions about him than I do about the rest of the guys in the tier that is sort of fifteen to twenty that comes after Matt Olson. So I would be, I'd love to get Matt Olson and stay out of that question, uh, you know, full stop. But I think in this group, Hoskins, Array, Walker, Mountcastle, I want Hoskins.
2: Yeah, I think you can do okay in this group if draft position or if the dollars just don't quite work out when you're looking at these top five first basemen. Uh, I do think Olsen, relative to Alonzo, is a good value. Relative to the guys behind him is a bit safer. I think the other guy that fits into this Tier 2 cluster is Vinny Pasquantino. Because you've got you know Nate Lowe, I think the way he did it last year looks pretty sustainable and legit. I don't really have any... Issue with where he's going right around that pick one hundred mark. Abreu's in that Except range Except that he too. doesn't
1: pull the ball, so he's not gonna he's not gonna benefit from these rules. Uh, for example, uh, Freddie Freeman had twenty eight pulled line drives in that band that I talked about. Nate Lowe had fifteen, uh, and that's a big difference.
2: Yeah, I think for me, it's like he hit the ball in the air a little bit more last year. That's a mm-hmm. change for the better. He's a little bit more aggressive in general. Keeps the K rate down at a reasonable low like 22% range maybe ticks back up to 25 but that's that's something I you think can he's live He's a decent with.
1: player. I'm not sure how much is left to unlock. I know uh Donny Ecker works there and he's I respect the hell out of him um but you know I don't know that there's much more past. I like do you think he's going to hit 327 homers again?
2: No, I I think the problem I think I would have with low At this price, isn't that I think he's going to fall apart or that he's not going to do something really close with the projection, say? It's that when I look at the 260 to 270 average from the projection systems and low to mid-20s home run power without speed, I think you can find a few first basemen who go 50 picks later that have a good enough chance of doing that. that, Yeah, that you don't necessarily need to take that skill set in that spot.
1: Yeah. And but Pascantino has like the same skill (laughs) set.
2: Well, the only thing is higher upside, perhaps
1: maybe, maybe. See, the thing is, what do we want out of Pascantino that he might hit 327 homers next year?
2: Right. (laughs) Would Lowe just did it? Lowe just did it. Do you want the guy that just showed you he could do it, whose lineup keeps getting better or should keep getting better? Or do you want the guy that's still trying to do it for the first time at the big league level over know. a full season?
1: Low Lo is 101 and Vinny is 93. Like, why do- that doesn't make sense to me, actually? As much as I don't love Nate Lowe's line, like, Lowe did it. The best thing that Vinny Pascantino could do this year is what Nate Lowe did last year. That's how I feel.
2: <laughs> there might be a ceiling above that, but I just think if you're expecting a ceiling above that, you are setting the bar in a place that is almost certainly going to disappoint you yeah I I won't have much of any Pascantino this year as much as I like him I really like him
1: but you know uh, I think the, the 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 expectations are unreasonable and there's a, a fairly large swath here between the bat and steamer when it comes to projections he's got a 270 16 Homer projection from the bat X and a 278 24 Homer projection from the steamer that's a it's a pretty big gap there in terms of of how much power is to be expected um in my draft that you know that I, I've i had Pascantino went in the seventh round uh Nate Lowe went later in the seventh round and Reese Hoskins went in the ninth Jose Brea went in the sixth I I continue to think that Reese Hoskins is a value pick
2: I think part of what makes guys pop on my my sheet is I look at at overall projections and performance is when I see projected WOBAs. I see a cluster of players who look kind of similar, and then I see one guy that has a WOBA that's like 10 points better than the group, and in this instance, that is Reese Hoskins. You're giving up a little bit of batting average, but you're getting a higher power, power floor. Damn. I'd rather have the power floor. I think the power is more predictable and more stable in this case. So I'm, I'm with you on Hoskins. I think he'll creep up a little bit. I also wonder if the timing of when projection systems come out if that has a, a pretty strong influence on the early ADP, if Steamer is the only system that's out and Steamer is more bullish on young players like Vinny Pasquantino, they're going to probably carry ADPs that are a little higher than they should and become. Is that bearish?
1: Which one's bad?
2: Uh, bearish would be means you, you do a stay away. Bullish means that you'd be in, right? So, so the, the bad X in. is
1: bearish on. on- on young guys.
2: Right, and Steamer is bullish. And because oh, Steamer okay. is more bullish, then the market is more bullish. Oh, so people are buying Vinny Pascantino. So there's a little, bit, the of, there's a little bit of an a, extra price on Pascantino because of the order of the projection systems coming out. And again, there are things to like about him. You have to choose someone. That's the problem with snake drafts. You have to make a choice. I think it makes more sense to wait within this group or to go to a different position entirely in this range because there's so little that separates first baseman six from first baseman 16 or 17 right now. So I think this, you could argue that tier two is really deep, that it starts somewhere around Pasquantino and low at pick 90, and it could run as far down as like pick 160 or 170, where you start to see Rowdy Tellez and Mountcastle and Anthony Rizzo.
1: Why am I going to take CJ Crone higher? You know, why am I going to take Ryan Mountcastle and Christian Walker where they're going when I like Rowdy telez I like Anthony Rizzo. Mm-hmm. And he real is going what one fifty? Yeah, right in that range. I like Rizzo. Yeah, one fifty. I like Rizzo down there for sure. I mean, he's a lefty that did uh, pull a lot of balls. Twenty three uh, pulled balls. Him and Josh Naylor, twenty six pulled balls in that area. Uh, Nay- Naylor didn't have the quite the bear rate Rizzo, but he makes more contact. Um, but Rizzo also has that short porch he's just aiming for, you know. And it's a really good mix of player and park. Uh, so I you know I I have uh, I have Rizzo circled as a late guy. I have Rowdy circled as a late guy. Uh, I have Olsen and Hoskins circled as one of the few that uh, early guys that I'll take. And then I'm going to take a long break
2: and see who's there later with between Teles, Rizzo, and Naylor. So I think there's a couple things that can go wrong once you enter this range, usually at the back of this range. You can start to run into players who lose playing time in the right situation. And I don't think Andrew Vaughn is one of those players. I think it's like either the guys that haven't proven it over a full season yet with the power, that'd be more like Vaughn. Or it's guys that could slide into a slightly smaller role because the team added someone they can platoon with or... You know, there's just other factors in play that can really chip away at playing time.
1: I think that happens a little bit after after like Rizzo, Naylor, Bell. I think it starts to happen around Vaughn. I mean, when I hear you say that, I hear Trey Mancini. Yep, a little bit. You know, Luis Arias, a little bit. Miguel Vargas has a nice projection, um, and I love him. And he hit he hit fastballs really hard in his limited sample last year, but Miguel Vargas. Uh, we don't know where he sits on the on the depth chart. Jose Miranda, do we know where he sits on the depth chart and what his playing time will look like? So I think there is there's definitely another uh, tier that ends bet- around Andrew Vaughn and Ty France, and you get a little bit more uh, it gets a little bit more dicey after that. So yeah, I think you want you know uh, two top twenty first basemen in most leagues.
2: I got pretty twisted up in this range in a slow draft I was doing where I didn't have a first baseman. And because I waited, I got down to the options of bell France, rowdy Telez, I think Naylor and Mountcastle were still out there. Maybe Rizzo was still there too, but this group of six was there. And I thought, I just don't want to miss on playing time in a draft and hold, especially because I can't go out and pick up someone else. So who do I think is most important to their team? And who do I think is the most durable? of this group. And I actually landed on Bell in France. And the the more I've thought about it, the more I think I was actually underrating a guy that I watch all the time in Rowdy Telez, Because when you look at projections for Ty France, he's sort of the opposite of what I was talking about earlier with Hoskins. He has that projected WOBA 322 that actually seems pretty low for this group. And that's real-life value. And that's a team in Seattle that's trying to continue to get better. They're trying to go back to the postseason – They might be more inclined to make a tough decision in the lineup in 2023 and take away some playing time if they have to. But he's a good defender at first base.
1: But also, Ty Francis, like, if you just don't look at the projections and you kind of just look at their lineup and close your eyes, he's one of their only few hitters. (laughs) You know, like, is it really going to get, if it gets bad, worse than Ty France, like, if Ty France isn't good, then this lineup is not good. You know what I mean? Because they've got Berruigas and Teoscar, who's going to be good if if not Ty France? Like he's their third best hitter.
2: I don't think that's a reason to take him over some of the other guys in this yeah, range. Yeah. <laughs> right, right,
1: right, right, right. That's I'm just saying, saying he may not Mariners. lose time. Yeah, it's more of an alarm for the Mariners that they they should have done a little bit more to improve this offense. I believe, but um, yeah, you're right. I mean, if Ty France's barrel rate last year was below average for his position. I think it might be one of the worst bail rates on here. I mean, Luis Arias, of course.
2: That's low for the league as a whole, too. I mean, 5.4%, that's, that's just low. It is the lowest at first base, other than Yuli Gurriel and Luis Arias, who are just different kinds of players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or right. if Yandy Diaz qualifies, he's under 20 games, so he doesn't qualify in FPC. he'd also be in that low range, too. Uh, but going back to Vaughn for a minute, I, I think... I see the growth potential. I like a lot of things he does. He does not walk a lot, which is also something that's true of Ty France. I think that hurts his real-life value, but when I look at the White Sox depth chart, I think he's increasingly important to this lineup. I think the departure of like Jose France. Abreu. Like they, yeah. he, they need him. <laughs> yeah, they need to play him, so it's a question of whether or not you believe there's another level of power that he's going to unlock now that he's going to back to his natural position and he can just focus a little more on taking the next step at the plate. Vaughn has a,
1: a little bit of a, a double whammy going on with the plate discipline that I don't like. I've talked a lot about O-swing on here and chase rate and how much I, I value players that don't chase. But when I did some research and found out that, you know, it's a little bit more powerful if you include how much they swing at strikes because there are people who are too passive that don't swing it at balls, but also just don't swing at strikes. There were times when Juan, Juan Soto last year was too passive. You know, he needed to get more aggressive in the strike zone to get back on track. Andrew Vaughn doesn't swing at strikes and does swing at balls. It's a bad combo. You know, thirty percent Z minus O is like you know zone swing minus O swing is bad, and he's under thirty percent. So. I don't really know what's going on with that because I don't think I got that impression of him as a hitter in college. I thought he had a decent sense of the zone, but this year, uh, you know, in in the major leagues, this has been a problem for him, and it's not something that's necessarily a one year blip. Uh, He didn't swing at strikes his his freshman year, freshman year, and he and he did have a a little bit of a tendency to swing at balls. So, um, I tend to cast aspersions on uh, White Sox coaching and player development. And it's particular when it comes to plate discipline. And uh, I'm really interested by their hiring recently of Sam Mondry-Cohen, who is a former AGM for the Nationals, uh, who was the director of R&D for the Nationals, who's now going to be a traveling analyst with the White Sox. One thing I can say for Sam, there is a reputation in the Nationals front office that Mike Ruzzo doesn't always listen to the to the nerds, quote unquote. Um, that's the same reputation I have <laughs> ever in Chicago. So he will be at home. <laughs> um, maybe he'll be able to get through. Maybe he maybe he understands what that's like and maybe he'll be able to uh, affect some of their coaching and uh, some of their game day prep. Uh, and some of their player development in this new role. I, I'm fascinated by that hire in particular, and I'm fascinated by Andrew Vaughn because he is has a great hit tool. Uh, he hits the ball the other way. He hits with power. He hits the ball hard, but he does things that I don't like. He goes the other way too much. He swings at too many balls, and he doesn't swing at strikes. It's a very strange package for me. I don't want to say I don't like him overall, but he does things I don't like.
2: <laughs> no, and I, I think that's the that's where – is he overpriced? It doesn't mean he's bad. It just means you probably shouldn't take him where people tend to take him. He's going to go at pick 130. It's probably a little bit early. You should probably take Christian Walker if that's the toss-up instead because the power just looks so much more stable with the underlying metrics. There's a lineup that's also getting better too. The Walker projection looks identical to the C.J. Krohn projection. I think with Crone, he has to deal with going in and out of Colorado – could get traded out of that situation and lose those knee home health. games. The long-term health of his knee has always been something that I've had kind of in the back of my mind. So, for that reason, I'm Walker over Crone. Are you looking at Kristen Walker's pace right now? If not, don't. Okay. I'm not looking at it right now. What was his batting
1: average last year? 240. Damn you! I thought it was like
2: 215. No, Which it was rattly. for much of the year, right? Yeah, but I think we talked about him at least once, probably two or three times. 2-0-4 in the first half, 285
1: in the second. He was hitting the crap out of the ball all year. Yeah. He just hit too many fly balls early and he kind of. He, oh, look at that. He was at 51% fly balls when I talked to him about hitting too many fly balls and he ended the year at 44%. That's amazing. You helped him. Well, he, I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> no, no. He's, he's really smart. He's really smart. Maybe, maybe. Maybe I'm wrong about him. Maybe he's, uh, he belongs with Hoskins there. All right. I'll go Hoskins, Walker, um, Abreu, Mountcastle,
2: Tellez. I'm denigrating Crone. Okay. You're a little higher on Mountcastle than, uh, than I no, might be. That's a good be.
1: projection. You know? It's a
2: very solid projection. I've always been skeptical. I've always had this little bit of doubt about Ryan Mountcastle. He's
1: very aggressive overall. Here's one of those ones where maybe our focus on chase rate missed the fact that he swings at 82% of the balls he sees in the strike zone. For example, for Ryan Mountcastle, 82% of the balls in the strike zone, 41 out. So that's a 40, 41% difference. Andrew Vaughn, 63% in the strike zone, 35% out. Very different. 36% out. Yeah. So anyway, I think
2: that Mountcastle is just a a guy with a decent hit tool who's very aggressive. The power is real. The power is backed up by barrel rates. 15% barrel rate last year. Power went down in large part because the park changed in Baltimore. So he could get a few homers back this year. I think that's reasonable just based on how hard he hits the ball. I think my concerns with Ryan Mountcastle are so rooted in real life value in that In 2021, even when he had 33 homers, it was a 111 WRC plus. Last year, it was a 106 WRC plus. This is an Orioles team that's getting better, that will eventually have more threats to his playing time. I don't think this is the year it happens, but if you're in a keeper league or a dynasty league, especially, and people still look at Mount Castle as someone that's going to be safe for multiple years, you might get a nice return via trade now that you won't be able to get a year or two from now. Yeah. But
1: uh, you know, then I I think that uh, you know if you don't like Mount Castle, it's okay to wait because I do I I do like the Rizzo Naylor Bell grouping. You know that's a a grouping that has uh, ADPs all the way from 150 down to 220 for Naylor. Um, I, I think you your concerns about playing time might sort of begin with Naylor. It's Naylor and Vaughn I have next. Naylor Vaughn France. I do think Naylor needs to play. I think he's one of the few people on that team that can hit the ball hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, if you're looking at max exit velos and barrel rates on this team, yes, of course you got Jose Ramirez, but you don't have a lot else. And he had a he had a near nine percent barrel rate, a one thirteen max EV, paired it with that you know Clevelandian strikeout rate. Um, but uh, I think Naylor needs to play. Maybe he's going to sit against some lefties, which will cause you some issues and is relevant to what you're talking about in terms of playing time but i actually think they need to play him most of the time um and i think that it gets a little bit more dicey after that in the sort of rise vargas miranda uh, place that i was talking about where do you have a guy that you like after that goes after arius so rise is 213 right now mm. i think uh, and then I guess Naylor is 220. So do you have a, a, a first baseman you like that goes after 225?
2: I've got a couple. I think now that he has a team, Trey Mancini makes a lot of sense in this range. He'll jump up. Players in this range that sign, as soon as they sign, they go up a couple of rounds, but he'll still be affordable enough where I think that's a steady projection. I like him more as a corner than as a weight at first base sort of guy. If we're in a 15-team league and he's my primary first baseman, something probably went wrong. I, yeah, I probably waited too long, and I'm giving up some some pretty valuable stats to do it. I do like Miguel Vargas a lot. He's first base eligible to begin the season because that's where he played the most in his brief time in the big leagues last year. I can't remember if you said this while we were recording or before we started recording, but M- Miguel Vargas hits fastballs hard. Like he's, yeah, he's number one. Yeah, he's got that ability. It's a little bit like the way I felt about Jose Miranda this time last year, where it's like, okay, there's a few different spots he can play. It's a good team. It's a good core set of skills. This is probably going to work. The early weeks of the season could be bumpy, though.
1: Yeah, the problem with taking Miguel Vargas
2: is I think it means you have to take another first base. He's going late enough right now where... He could be your third or he could be your third corner. He could be your third and then you have to do the thing where if he is your corner, you do have to have a bench. You do have to have one more corner-eligible, first-base-eligible player. I would agree with that assessment. So you do have to think about managing the bottom of the roster. I do like him in a bench capacity. And in fact, I would like, I'd rather have Miguel Vargas
1: in a bench capacity than someone like Seth Brown. As much as Seth Brown is going to play, I think Seth Brown showed us, you know, he's uh, 30 years old. uh, You know, he plays in a tough park and uh, he's a classic sort of I'm trying to hit homers. That's what he told me, you know. He's <laughs> like I'm just trying to hit homers. And so, you know, I see a guy who's going to hit like 220 and have 25 homers and that's you know sort of borderline in most leagues and um it's going to be hard to know when to cut him or not, you know. Whereas I think if you uh, if you have and- if you have Miguel Vargas on your bench, you you know what you're looking for, playing time. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just you're just looking for playing time. And uh, and if he gets the playing time, then it's because he's playing well and uh, he's going to be better than Seth Brown. So, you know, of course, things flip a little bit. If I'm talking about an AL only, obviously, uh, I don't want Miguel Vargas. (laughs) But uh, but also just uh, in a in the deepest leagues in AL only's, uh, I start to like people that I think will just play most of all. So in an al only or in an only league uh, i don't know miguel vargas becomes a, a possibility of being an overpriced prospect type where i'm not sure about the playing time and i have to play him what if he gets 300 plate appearances this year then then that'll be a rough go of of me putting plugging me in every week you know so in a in an only league i prefer seth brown you know some of the deeper names that i like in only leagues are seth brown will myers um I don't know, uh, Jared Walsh, you know, uh, Brandon Drury, uh, Brandon Belt even. You know, I like those names in in AL onlys or in only leagues because I
2: think they'll play. Yeah, the, the threshold for playing time in a mono league is low enough where the big side platoon masher, which I think very accurately describes what Brandon Belt is at this stage of his career, that plays just fine in an AL only league. It plays fine in draft and hold. It doesn't play as well. In the typical mixed league, even a 15 team mixed league, he's good enough to be on the roster. It's going to be difficult to have him on the roster, start to finish all season. Um, We talked about it when he signed Uh, 12 team leagues. He'll be up and down off the roster in fantasy leagues a ton because there are going to be some weeks where Brandon Belt has a perfect schedule. Maybe one of the catchers is dinged up, too. So he'll play a little extra that week because of the catchers role in the DH mix in Toronto. But anyway, um, I I think you're right. Deeper leagues, especially he, he stands out. The other guy that's in this range, he's first base eligible, and he's also second base eligible, but I I really don't know what to do with his playing time is Jake Cronenworth. Is Jake Cronenworth, because of his defensive versatility, still a everyday guy on an improving Padres team? I mean, play, played appearances last two seasons, 643 and 684. So you get a ton of runs and a ton of RBIs playing that much in a lineup that good. Power was solid again last year, 17 homers, given the league context, not bad.
1: Should have hit for a better batting average,
2: just given his core skills. You you shouldn't hit for a 239, that's not his skills, no.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, the power was down a little bit, but in terms of making contact, powerful enough, speedy enough, he should have hit for a better batting average. Yeah, I, I think the Padres have to play him. It's, it's weird that he's somehow, you know, this guy who, you know, threw, uh, was a re- like a reliever, I think, a, like a decent pitcher uh, in college and even threw some in the minor leagues and was supposed to be a utility guy who's going to play all over, uh, was a major uh, coup for the Padres. And I, and I believe Dave Cameron from Van Graus was involved in, in his acquisition um, you've got this sort of Jake Cronenworth is going to help us wherever uh, becomes Jake Cronenworth is our first baseman. Um, but if you want to field the best defensive team, he is your first baseman because Nelson Cruz is your DH. Matt Carpenter can play some first base. I guess it's Matt Carpenter and HaSeon Kim are the are the the people that threaten Cronenworth's playing time. Yep. Uh, but they won't do it until Tatis is back. And by the time Tatis is back, maybe if Trent Grisham is still struggling along, maybe Tatis takes over center, right? And then you can play, you know, Carpenter and whoever. Then there's like a, basically an extra spot that means that Cronenworth will play every day. So I tend to think that because the beginning of the season he's going to play every day, that by the end of the season he'll still be playing every day. <laughs> you know, it'll just be like, oh, this guy's hurt. Oh, this guy's hurt. Or oh, Grisham's not playing well. Tatis is a center fielder now. Now we need Cronenworth in the outfield. Or we're going to play Carpenter in a in a corner outfield or whatever it is. You know, we're going to figure this out. In fact, as I'm saying all these, is there a little bit of a weakness in the Padres uh, depth chart here? That like corner outfield a little bit. Uh... Would you want to play Matt Carpenter or Nelson Cruz or Jake Cronenworth in a in a corner outfield position? No. No, I would not. That's interesting. That's why they picked up Adam Engel recently. Hmm. But, yeah, if, Grisham, if Grisham's not good, Engel's not really what, who you want to be
2: starting, and Tatis could be a center fielder. Tatis almost has to be at center field, or at least in and left. Like he's he's got to be part of their RL Fields a little thin right now, but when he comes back, he's part of that rotation, so it's fine.
1: I know there's a lot of people in San Diego listening who are tired of Trent Grisham and are ready to move on. Um and I I hear it, I guess. Uh he's been a league average player every year. He's he's played, you know, full time, so I like him, but um last year was a little rough with the bat.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> it was that was pretty brutal uh, last season. I just thought he was interesting to bring up just because uh, I don't know. Like I I like him a lot as a second baseman. He's fine. He's first and second base eligible so you can move him around. And that's
1: nice, too. I mean, this is you, this is in draft and hold season. You know, that's that's great. That's CIMI
2: first base, second base. That's great. You mentioned Joey Meneses. He's first base and outfield eligible just inside the top 200. Are you trending into a place where you might actually consider taking Maness there? Or do you just find that there are other players, other positions that make more sense in that 175 to 200 range overall?
1: No, I like him. Uh, I've been finding that, um, you know, uh, people have been denigrating outfield and we'll get to this. I think I might end up taking him as an outfielder. Uh, they can maybe play uh, backup first or, or corner corner infield as opposed to play taking me as a first baseman. if that makes sense? I know that people have been saying that outfield uh, gets uh, bad late, but there's tons of Joy Manessas types, you know, that I feel like you can get later that hit 250 with 25 homers, and
2: that's fine. That's great for your like fourth outfielder. Yeah, could be an okay corner guy in a deep enough league as well. Let's get to some young players in darts. We've already named a few. I think Tristan Cassis by ADP is one of the more intriguing young players that seems to have a path to a ton of playing time this year for the Red Sox. If things are going to go right in Boston, Tristan Cassis being good this year would certainly help push things in those directions. Are you in based on what you've seen from Cassis so far in the big leagues and, of course, what we saw in the upper levels of the minor leagues?
1: He worried me a little bit when he told me that he, he you know, he doesn't really like to study or, or, or you know, um, he's not into like tech or data, and he's a field guy. But hey, it takes all types to make a baseball team go, and not everyone has to be a data guy like I want them to be. Um, really like his patience Com- combined with uh, the swing strike rate. I think that strikeout rate will come down. Um he hits too many ground balls right now, but a you know, like a one ten point five max EV suggests the raw power is there, doesn't swing at balls outside the zone. The process all seems good. I don't know really why he hit one ninety seven last year, uh, other than maybe he got shifted real hard and just ground balled everything into the shift, which, you know, that's changing too. So um I'm into him. I, I like him as a as a as a late pick. Um Like, right now, is there anybody going to take his playing time?
2: I don't think Bobby Dahlbeck's going to do it. I mean, the the contact rate is just so bad. They've got enough holes elsewhere. They can't really afford to take their versatile guys that might need to fill in somewhere up the middle and play them at first base either. So I think he gets a pretty good opportunity to begin the season to prove that he is ready to take this job and, and run with it. I do, too. Um, and, you know,
1: there's guys around him that just have a lot more question. Um, I like Lamont Wade Jr. Uh, as, a, as a veteran 29-year-old that has done a lot of things right, has a good K rate, has had good barrel rates. Um, but uh, if things don't go well for Wade, he's on a team that will uh,
2: marginalize him quickly. The Spencer Torkelson experience was not a fun one a year ago there were some encouraging signs underneath there was the good o-swing percentage again (laughs) we're looking for silver linings last year not really a lot of threats to take his job clearly someone that the tigers believe in long term as someone who went 1-1 in the 2020 draft so what do you think year two might look like for spencer torkelson and do you think around pick 300 this is actually a, a good late dart that you could throw as your first first baseman off the bench, perhaps, or your corner infielder off the bench. Do you think there's enough here to take that chance?
1: Yeah, I guess so. But I like Cassis' process numbers better. Um, you know, Cassis didn't swing and s- miss so often. You know, um, the max EV was there for, for Torkelson, so the the, the raw power is there. Um, Cassis also is willing to pull the ball, where Torkelson's done a lot of opposite field work. Now, didn't Detroit change their uh, outfield as well? So uh, that might help Torkelson a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm into him. Uh, you know, a very different player uh, that's down here that, that intrigues me. I just did a piece about the Reds and the 80th percentile outcomes. And in that, uh, Spencer Steer had a possibility of, of being a three war hitter and being the best, uh, he had the best 80th percentile projection on the reds. (laughs) Um, and you know, what I see from him is not the greatest batted ball power, but good plate discipline, better strikeout rates in the minors, a really nice swinging strike rate, really just gobs of opportunity. Um, and I don't think, you know, I think Torkelson, if he struggles could get sent down. Uh, whereas I think steer might get a whole season to struggle uh in Cincinnati um and, and a bunch of rope and again we have the steamer bat difference in in opinion when it comes to a rookie uh but steamer's a projection of 240 and 19 homers uh from steer uh, is just something that I can kind of almost believe in um because he's just going to play and it's a good bark to play in so uh I put uh, I put steer as um, just a a notch below Isak Paredes as you know, these utility guys that I'm actually pretty excited about.
2: Yeah, there's a few other guys that have uh, multi-position eligibility. A couple older guys, DJ LeMayhew and Wilmer Flores, that go pretty late. I mean, I don't think of them as first basemen for my fantasy team, but they can fill in that spot. They both are in lineups that should produce. Both can be moved around between first, second, and third. I think where they're going... I have no problem using them as glue guys, and I think they work really well if you're going to take a chance on a young first base only player because you're going to need some versatility on the bench if you're going to have that extra guy that's not necessarily offering you something those first couple weeks of the season. Like if you're in a
1: draft and hold, you know, if you have three major league first basemen that you think will play, then you're fine. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd like to try to have three. But if one of that three is Tristan Cassis, then you may want to have another eligibility somewhere. So you have four eligibilities and three human beings. Uh, (laughs) If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I like to have four eligibilities at every position. But you have to be careful because sometimes with your multiple eligibility, especially on the middle infield, I've gotten to places where I had four eligibilities at second and and short and I had four guys. You know, four eligibilities each at second and short. And I only had four guys. <laughs> you know, I was, I was like, it was that sort of deal. Uh, so you have to be careful to actually have human beings, uh, you know, as well. So <laughs> that's that's weird when you say it that way. Count the players correctly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm one last note for me about first base is just how uh, quickly Jared Walsh fell from grace, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't know that I. I don't know that I I, I I have a reason to say no. The projections are wrong. One thing that, that the projections are right on is maybe sub-500 plate appearances because he does seem to be a platoon player at this point, and the team even seems to have built a platoon partner for him in, in, a, in Brandon Drury. Um, so if you're going to tap out at 500 plate appearances, then you're already capping your upside value. Um, and he always had a, a bit of an issue with strikeout rate. It's gotten worse. Um, and even the barrel rate got worse. But even if he get the barrel rate back, I don't know if he's going to hit much better than 230 or 240. So now you got a 240 guy with maybe 30 homer upside who's only going to play 500 plate appearances. So he only hit like 220, 240 with 22 homers or something, Jared Walsh. So, you know, what? maybe in a deep league, uh, if he's like, you know, a two three dollar guy hmm. um, then I'm into it like in an only league but is he going to be on your NFBC rosters even draft and holds I mean draft and hold, what are you hoping yes. for like as a third first baseman of draft and hold where you just plug him in to get some plate appearances when the other two guys are hurt or whatever
2: yeah I think if you're in a situation where Brandon Belt is in play Jared Walsh is in play right around that same window and you got to make a decision which one do you like better I think I actually like Belt better like I believe more in the longer track record from Belt uh, in that particular instance, but I'm I think not that's, sure. the, that's the situation I, I for me.
1: I, I can tell a story where Jared Walsh ends up playing every day, a little bit more than Brandon Belt. The story that I would tell is that this team doesn't have a shortstop. Somebody that they thought would be a depth piece is their everyday shortstop. Fletcher, or Urshela. One of those guys ends up being their everyday shortstop because... They needed it. (laughs) And if that happens, then maybe Brandon Drury becomes their everyday second baseman. And if that happens, then they're a little bit more likely to need an everyday first baseman. I don't know, though. It's actually pretty crowded there all of a sudden. Maybe. mm, No, I'll take Walsh just barely overbelt. Younger,
2: knees are in better shape, I hope. Yeah, I wonder if the the playing surface in Toronto is more of a problem for Brandon Belt than, than I'm giving it credit for. Uh, but I do think you have to look at Jared Walsh's 2022 and consider the possibility that he was playing through that injury for a significant share of it. Because mm-hmm. the, the power outage doesn't really make any sense. You so, don't
1: have much to look at in terms of thoracic outlet and hitters.
2: Yeah, it's an unusual problem. And it's the kind of thing that does seem to be a longer road to recovery for, too. So I think maybe that's part of my skepticism, too. But if he's healthy this spring, that sort of changes the outlook. And you know, by the time people get to the actual drafts, we might have information that starts to move Jared Walsh up. And if, if he's totally healthy, no limitations, looks really good in the spring, I could get on board with that. Uh, we kind of sidestep Matt Mervis with the, the young first baseman. We talked to him a
1: lot when he when uh, we did the cast about uh, uh, Mancini. Mancini going there, yeah. Signing, but... Um, I think we both I think we both agree that we like him still, and we still think there's an opportunity for him. Um, it's an awkward. Uh, it could be a draft pick that you pick uh, for two dollars in an NLA only, and then you put him on your bench, and you go, you know, and you go to FAB to find a utility guy, or you use a guy that you've got in reserve. Mm. Uh, you know, I do that sometimes where I pay a little bit to get a prospect that I know I can demote. And then I can bring up somebody I got in reserves that I think will play, um, especially because you're talking about utility. But it's a little bit of an awkward uh, pick in, like, I don't think NFBC regular formats is a good pick because he's not going to play to begin. Then you're going to nurse this guy along uh, on your bench. I don't think so. Um, and then uh, draft and holds is an interesting, like, I think I'd rather have cassas because he's going to play. Uh, but if I had three major league first basemen, like if Walsh was my third first baseman, uh, and I had a spot for a prospect, maybe take Mervis as uh, as my prospect uh, late in the game, and then I have a prospect that plays at a, a position I might need help in. Yes,
2: yeah, so I think the the takeaway on Mervis would be that if you're in a league where you can afford the bench spot, you may have to take him earlier than the, the cover you're going to get later. Walsh and Belt, and even like Carlos Santana if you think he's going to play. I mean, do, do you think any one of Carlos Santana or Joey Votto or Dominic Smith or Luke Voigt, guys that we used to rely on at this position, do you think any of those guys end up being reliable enough to be fantastic late values for either the mono leagues or for draft and holds, or even as maybe in-season pickups in leagues where you end up chasing first base early in the season?
1: I think Dominic Smith would have to recover his old barrel rate before I believed in him. And that barrel rate that he had that was so good was in 199 plate appearances in 2020 of all seasons. Otherwise, he's had a pretty mediocre barrel rate, mediocre max EV, mediocre uh, chase rate for the most part. Uh, too many ground balls. Not not a real great. Str- I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just I, I just don't have a place where I'm like, oh, at least he does this, you know. Um. So uh, yeah, I would take Mervis over a lot of those
2: guys. Yeah, I think they're. Depth behind them. Last game. Last name. Oh, oh, I one last
1: up. thing. We don't talk about this enough in dynasty leagues. First year player draft. Mervis is gonna be a decent pick,
2: right? Because he wasn't previously stashed in a lot of those leagues.
1: Yeah, sometimes you don't you don't have an ability to pick up minor leaguers during the season. Mervis is gonna, is one of those guys that popped, you know. And he may he may be a better pick than somebody who went in the first round of the last of the of the of the college draft or the draft, you know. Because uh, a lot of those guys, if you think about it, the first five picks in the draft are way better than the rest of the draft. So if you're talking about, do I want to pick the 10th best guy who went in the first round of last year's draft? Or do I want to take Matt Mervis? I'm taking Matt Mervis.
2: Yeah, I think that makes sense. Proximity to the big leagues, things he's shown are the upper levels of the minor leagues. that all That all checks out for sure. Uh, one prospect before we go, Kyle Manzardo, I think, is really interesting in Tampa Bay. I think you could see some statistical similarities to Vinny Pasquantino, where you have this first baseman making his way through the minor leagues with really good eye at the plate, nice low strikeout rate, getting to that power consistently, twenty two homers combined over ninety three games a year ago, finished the year at double A. Not old for the level. I mean, he was a college draftee in twenty twenty one as a second rounder. But doing everything he's supposed to do at every level. Yeah, I just wonder how long the Rays are gonna make him wait. Like, if he opens the year back at Double A, spends three or four weeks there, and just continues to mash, I would think they'd give him a look at Triple A. And once he's there, how long does it take before he can earn the call up? When you look at Harold Ramirez, Yandy Diaz, forever, man. Why why though? Like, look at this offense. Look at the way they're already
1: twenty-four years old. I mean, he's been playing at... He's been playing a, above double A for two years.
2: I know, I mean, we talked about him. I think as a prospect of the week, I like Jonathan Aranda. He could play a couple more spots. Manzardo's like really like a true first baseman. I think by by every possible account,
1: I think it's just time for them. To, I, as much as Yandy Diaz does some things that we all like, like isn't it? And, and Harold Ramirez was a, a was a a guy they picked up off of waivers. Like those guys can't be standing in the way of Manzardo if he's got a one fifty WRC plus in in a
2: I think it's a second-half sort of call-up timetable. So, again, mm-hmm. the types of redraft leagues where you stash a player like this are, are limited. It's AL only. It's draft and hold very late. But I just look at that group. Ramirez, Diaz plays a lot of third. Isak Paredes is a righty. They've got the DH spot, too. So some combination of two guys, if Aranda if and, and Manzardo were both hitting, they could also both be in the lineup at the same time. That's a possibility. I see a lot that could go right for Manzardo. I think there's... If you like Matt Mervis at all, I think you should be very excited about Kyle Manzardo.
1: Harold Ramirez is is hanging on by a string. You know, he was a below average bat in his career before he got to Tampa, and then Tampa he had a 350 batting average on balls and play and was suddenly better than league average. Uh, the projections are amazing. They they all say he's gonna be above league average, even though he's only had four hundred and thirty-five play appearances out of his twelve hundred and fifty-three that were above average. What is it they like about him? They may, he makes contact. He has a good max EV. This is a, a Tampa Bay Rays player. They love guys who hit the ball hard, don't barrel the ball, and and uh, don't strike out. It's a very strange thing. They love that player. Do they love that player because they think they can make them barrel the ball? Maybe. Or do they think that they, they love that player because they think the league loves barrels too much?
2: I think they love that player because that player does not make a lot of money. I think that's... A, <laughs> yeah. That player might get along really well with other players in the clubhouse and that player might hit the ball hard and have some, some on-field attributes they like, but I think the thing that they like the most is that the the dollars that they pay him are <laughs> not, not much, a dude. lot. That's yeah. what I think they really like about him.
1: I mean, they've clicked up so many guys like this. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, but I think with Ramirez being a righty, that especially, it's like they kind of need a new left-handed regular option at first base unless they see an everyday guy in that current list. I I don't see one. Maybe they do, but that's going to do it for our 2023 first base preview. Of course, many other episodes coming in this series. So if you're new Take a moment, leave us a nice rating and review, and be sure to come back for future episodes. You can drop us questions. barrels at theathletic.com is the email address. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for just $2 a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash ratesandbarrels.
1: Thanks for listening. <laughs>